0: Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of
1: global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next normal leadership series featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Varun Mehta, the CEO of managed legal service provider, Factor. During this episode, Liam and Varun discuss becoming a first time CEO in 2020, how brands evolve over time, access to capital to support legal transformation, and building billion dollar legal businesses.
0: Hi, Varun, and welcome. Thank you for making the time to speak with me on this podcast. Interestingly, even though we run businesses that would be said to compete, we don't know each other well, so we did have a chance to get to know each other a little bit before this call. Could you talk about who you are and how you got the job that you got today?
1: Sure, it's a pleasure to do this with you, Liam. I uh, started off as a biomedical engineer, and so you know, logical transition to legal services, of course. I was a biomedical engineer working at a big medical device company out of college. You know, working in a division of a division of another division was just not as exciting to me, and maybe this was probably a level of arrogance on my end, but it was like. If something happened to me tomorrow, nothing would be impacted at the company. So I should go somewhere where I can create that impact. I was like 22, so probably a little bit of arrogance. But I ended up joining the founding team of a business called Clutch Group, not really conscious of legal per se. And you're the chairman and CEO that were starting it. Quickly learned as much as I could about the law, would read the things you would write back in the day, Liam, back when you were at your previous firm. The first year, I probably just read. Five to 600 different things a week. I ended up becoming the CRO and head of global expansion at Clutch. We grew that, quadrupled it very quickly, and then ended up exiting that to another business in the market. I took a couple of years off. I never consciously made a decision to join legal. I poked around, got married and lost some weight and explored the world a bit. And then I kind of realized that the problems that existed in the world, while there's tons that we can go solve, So many of them that I kept running into seemed incremental versus what we could accomplish in legal. Plus, with the background and this idea that I love of compounded interest, I realized that the problems here were exponential. And so, pretty much, I got pulled back in working with a number of investors in the space. I just like to meet with people, you never know where it goes. And one of the folks I met, DeConti, who was running the managed service business here, formerly at Axiom. And he gave me a call in one October afternoon saying, We spun the business out. We're looking for a new CEO. Would you be interested? It became an awesome journey working with another innovator in this market, Mark Harris, who built Axiom, getting a chance to come work closely with him, who's our chairman. The great board that we have go to guys like Bob Cagle, who's the founder of Benchmark Capital, Jim Madden, who invests in the space at Carrick Capital. We just added Carol Lindstrom, who is the vice chair at Deloitte. It's been a great journey. I joined in January and just learning, having fun, meeting new people and trying to see
0: what we can shake up. It just occurred to me, Varun, that when you tell that story, if my kids were listening, I think what they would hear was that if you meet a lot of people and you're nice to people, you'll end up as a CEO.
1: Strange things happen in strange ways and not to get philosophical, in, but it just you just got to put... Good energy out there and try to help people out and work together. And it doesn't matter whether we're competitors or partners or clients, we should still be figuring out how to work together.
0: So, this is your first CEO role. You are in a cohort of new CEOs who stepped into the role in 2020. I imagine that there is a be careful what you wish for story in here somewhere. So, what's it like being a first time CEO? And then what's it like being a first-time CEO in the time of COVID?
1: Liam, I think the biggest advice I got going into this role was it's a very lonely job. I think COVID's made it lonelier, right? Especially for someone like me who I derive a lot of my energy from meeting and spending time with people and learning. The circumstance I came into was very strange in the sense that this was a business that spun out of Axiom but it really didn't have a business around it. right? That's an important note. It was a great group of people. I mean, just the culture, and I mean this with no disrespect to anyone, the culture that Mark and Axiom had built was probably the best in the legal industry, not just our space. The bright minds they brought together. And so what I inherited was just, I was just awestruck. After spending a lot of time in this market, it felt very different to me. I did that at a time when I didn't have a CFO. We didn't have our own financials, right? We were just coming out. We didn't have systems. You know, We were getting all that going. And then at the same time, COVID hit. I knew that the most important thing, especially being the first-time CEO, I haven't had as many life lessons as others because I, the bulk of my career, I spent at one shop before this. I had a couple things that I thought a lot about, which is I just need to hire people that have forgotten more than I know about the fields that I need them in. The first six months was all about getting to know the people that we had in the organization and finding great people that can really support me. The COVID angle is we had a great head of people, we had a strategy with Chris, and we had a great head of commercial with Sandy. The rest of the team needed to be built. COO, CFO. Out all of those people came online. During COVID, outside of one, none of them have met really anyone at the company, which is really strange. Then, how do you build culture? We're taking a decade old business and we can't ignore the culture it comes with. And I don't want to, by the way, you know, I, I love it. We have to figure out our own space in the world. It's a 500 person startup. And so you have to respect the legacy and the heritage, embrace parts of it, and then create your own. All at a time when we're sitting at home doing this virtually. So it's been strange. There's puts and takes. We've been going through budget and strategy and these types of things. They're just a lot harder to do.
0: It's interesting. You covered a kind of a landscape of issues there. Some are your personal journey. What is it to be a new CEO with all of the optimism and trepidation that comes with that? Anytime you become a leader of people, you've touched a bit on the team and building out that team, which is connected to culture and the journey that the organization has gone through. And you've also touched a bit on systems. There are rituals and I'll call it method to an organization. When you become a new CEO or when you become the new CFO, you spend time with people around and you visit them and you break bread and you get to learn a bit about them. One of the things that I hear the way that you've talked about systems there though, is that it kind of overlaps with the other issues of your own journey and the journey of your team, which is because you've had to operate these systems on the fly and they have to be different in 2020 to the way they were previously. That brings you back, that grounds you to, wow, all my team, all my people are going, wow, this is hard. And it's quite easy when you're a new CEO to be ushered into the corner office and Yes, you do a lot of town halls, and yes, you meet with people, but you're focused on these other stakeholders, the board, the investors, the strategic customer relationships. This journey that you've been through, perhaps it's more grounding and more connecting to your team than the more traditional time of being a new CEO.
1: I think the pointer on rituals is really interesting. This is technically the first Q4 our people operations has had to go through, right? So there's performance and talent assessments. There's open enrollment, which to everyone is a whatever. It's just something that you have to do. But it's the first time we're doing this, right? So I actually, part of it is I have to appreciate the fact that there's a lot of lift to do that for the first time when you have 500 people in five different places in the world. Because when you're building it, it's never perfect when you're building it. You're building it as you go. And I'm not going to comment on your experience, but for us back in the day, it was like, we're going to just keep whatever we have until it breaks and then we'll add to the next one. Here, it's not really possible because you're benchmarked against what existed before. So it has to be at least as good as before. There's just so much we're doing for the first time. It's not like coming in to be the CEO of a company that already
0: exists. Parts of it did. I have a lot of empathy for what you're working through. It's exciting at the same time as actually being difficult and challenging. As you said, sort of honoring the history of the business and at the same time, starting to carve out the new tracks in the snow of what you'd like to be. So talk a little about how you thought about architecting or designing the team around you and perhaps a little about the kinds of characteristics of the people that you look for in a leadership team.
1: Absolutely. Liam, I'll start with the market that we're in. We're competitors, but even if all of our competitors came together, we're barely the size of an AMLA 50 firm. If we take that with a grain of salt, that means that there's things happening, but not as much as maybe some of our friends in the journalist market are saying are true. What we needed to do was we needed to balance out leaders that knew our space. That have a very strong opinion about where the future is going, coupled with people that come from businesses that have already successfully changed and transformed other parts of the business unit, so they know what good looks like. Leah, you've been leading the charge for some time now. Nobody knows what good looks like in this market because it hasn't been built yet. Whatever is going to happen is still yet to happen, but there are flavors of it that look good. When you think about Roxanne like she ran 20,000 people at Accenture, no one knows managed services better than Accenture. If we want to be the player in this idea of complex work at scale through a managed service platform, no one knows it better than someone that's led a team of 20,000. Talent is key. People are going to come and go. Respect them on their way in and we want to respect them on their way out. You talked about what are the things you look for to find people once again that have forgotten more than I know and Couple that with they love doing that job. John was CFO of the largest business unit within Mercer, which is the leader in HR outsourcing. HR has figured this out. Information systems and technology have figured this out. So we should learn from what those folks have done and bring some of those capabilities in and couple that with someone like Ed Stone. Ed is this hybrid. He's a software engineer, turned lawyer at a law firm, We then moved to India for Pangea, you know, another great business. And then TR and he's doing product stuff there most recently was at EY Law. He's got views. We need people that have differing views. That's how I thought about it. It's not as conscious. It sounds
0: way more planned out than it actually was. The team that you put together as an outsider looking in is fantastic. The dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics those will all play out as you scale and you have to make choices. With that, you've got some things that I am interested in exploring. So you've got a new management team, you've got this Axiom legacy, and you've got this new factor brand that you're building. How do you and the rest of your team think about the brand development just in the time that you've been there? It seems to me to be an extremely good job of doing that brand transition and building a brand that where Factor stands for something, and it stands for something as an evolution from its heritage at Axiom. I remember when I was at Clutch, I would look to Axiom. I would go to Axiom
1: because it was so different, at least in my eyes. And I think a lot of what Mark told me is it just has to reflect the people. It has to be personified. And it has to be authentically the people that are there. When it comes to things like values or brand, it's more this aspiration. Aspiration should be a part of it, for sure. But often, it's only aspiration. And it's not grounded in whoever you are today. I think if you get a chance to meet some of our people, we've just been trying to put our best self out there and just be really authentic. And I think that's what you guys have done with Elevate. When we talk about law companies, you guys invented that. And that comes from Liam, a lot of you putting yourself into this. People want to imitate the Deloitte's of the world or the Accentures of the world. We're far from that journey.
0: So let's just be authentically ourselves now. When we get to that size, then we can use their words too. I think that's really an important statement because brands evolve in the same way that organizations evolve. And I really like your point about one of the touchstones needs to be who we are today as well as who we aspire to be in the future. But I really respect that because I think it's quite easy to sort of sit in a room and imagine or design, well, wouldn't it be cool if our company was what we aspire for it to be in 10 years time? And I think if that gap from reality today and aspiration in the future is too large, then people just don't believe in your brand or don't believe in what you stand for, I think that's really excellent advice. There's so much opportunity and space for the future of law that you. And I and all of our colleagues and all of our peers are trying to be part of designing, developing in the future. It's exciting. Now with that, you've taken a different path to me in one area in particular. So you work a lot more with the investor community. And I know I've got a bit of a reputation for being allergic to the investor community. So I just want to caveat that you work with some very experienced investors in this sector. How do you think about the role of institutional capital in the broader legal evolution that we're going through
1: i thought at one point think about starting a fund a legal tech fund where i wanted to help these businesses based on bringing together resources resources are humans ideas execution technology is a tool there's more institutional capital coming into this space there are people that want to continue to fund us major institutional investors Theoretically, there's no reason we can't build billion-dollar businesses in this market. And billion-dollar businesses, they don't exist today, but they should. We're actually... All of us are sitting in a category that a group of investors ignore. But to me, our stakeholders... And I know you say this all the time, which is our stakeholders should always be our clients and our people. And if we do that equation right... The investors will be fine. <laughs> that's always my mantra. That's always the way I think about it. Look, I think that your point about
0: building billion dollar businesses that meet a threshold for the financial markets is bang on. I make no secret about our aspiration there, you know, having come close to touching that path in a previous business. That's one of the reasons why I want to make sure that we have the capital structure to make sure that you can build to that point, And it requires customer adoption, you know, market awareness, the ability to attract talent and patience. You talked about resources earlier. I think time is an important resource to manage, as is energy. I noticed that you mentored and worked with Raj Goyal. I also noticed that you had worked with someone else in sort of my past, Mike Bryant. I noticed that you'd spent time with Wayne Matter. So I thought to myself, oh, this is interesting. So you're a business leader who has been mentored and has mentored others. How does mentoring fit into your view of developing into and then developing other business leaders?
1: There's no advice that's perfect. We all take loads of advice and then we come to our own decision. And then to keep that cycle alive, give that advice to somewhere else. When I think about people
0: who ask me about what's the secret, as if there's some kind of shortcut, I really do strongly encourage them to find a mentor who will provide coaching guidance and sometimes be able to help you identify which door to choose to walk through. But sometimes they actually have the kind of abracadabra magic word to be able to open the door for you. Mentoring is its not a formal part of the role of the board except that it kind of is an important part of the role of the board. You've got an impressive board. Working with a board is a skill that I think people that know me well will know that that is perhaps a bit of an Achilles heel for me. And I know if our board directors listen to this, they're all nodding along right now. But having an effective board is really an important governance. How would you describe the way that you work or want to work effectively with your board?
1: I think having an effective board that does challenge you, tries to really dig in and not rubber stamp, but it's so important for the health of the employees in the business. We're all shaped by the experiences we've been through. Having a board that I'm engaged with has been important. I'm super transparent. My LT joins every board meeting, not for all of it, for majority of it. And then we have exec sessions. When I think about the board, part of it's understanding who these people are, where they've come from, and what their interests are. I think a lot of it is... Thinking about how the collective would work and how you leverage that. I think the biggest lesson for me is one third readout, two thirds discussion. And that's not easy for me. We're getting there.
0: Yeah, I think there's some different languages that you bring to different situations or stakeholders, aren't there? As a CEO or a business leader, you have the language that you use and the listening that you have for spending time with customers and customer problems and trying to understand what are the real issues and drivers and motivations that sometimes are hard to see because it's under the surface, then you have a different listening and a different language for working with your colleagues. The aspirations, motivations, blood, sweat, and tears, the emotional commitment, the intellectual engagement. When you talk to the people in your organization about what they're working on or trying to achieve, and then there's a different conversation with your colleagues. And while you're a leader of a leadership team, there's a lot of your peers in that. So there's a whole kind of different language and listening there. And, and the boardroom is another place too. One of the things that I try to encourage not only Elevate's board, but uh, the boards that I've sat on in the past or other CEOs is to, is to really try to focus on high quality questions and really do the work before the meeting on what does this information mean? What are the insights that it surfaces for me or the questions that it causes me to ask. That discussion in the boardroom of high-quality questions is actually what leads to insights and decisions and ultimately to action. What I'd like to do, Varun, is do this again at some point in the future. I appreciate you for this podcast. Well, thank you for joining and I look forward to the next installment. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com.